scriptures, where all October long we'll be talking about the bloodiest, the creepiest, the scariest stories in all of the Bible. What you're about to hear may disturb you. Well, hey, thanks for tuning in to the House of Bliss. Well, actually, I mean, this isn't a radio show, so you're not really tuning in, but whatever. It's just what people say. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for dropping by. Um, I just had my wisdom teeth removed, and my face looks like I escaped from a Monsanto test facility, so I apologize if my enunciation isn't as up to snuff as usual. Uh, but I don't expect it to be an issue. This was like six days ago. I should be fine by now. Also, if I trail off, I apologize. Um, my face feels like I got hit by a 2x4 in the face, and I am on some light painkillers, so we'll see what happens. But you know me, I love a good adventure. So, uh, today, we are going to waltz through a rather macabre Bible story, but before we do, I just want to take care of two business matters. First, I want to thank my fabulous patrons. You know, I spend hours upon hours on this show, but thanks to your generosity, I can dedicate a portion of my work week to being able to encourage the world. How cool is that? And I have a whole bunch of new people to thank this week. So, shout out to Rick, Jamie, Anne, Drago, Molly, and Shelly. And then also a special thanks to Kim for actually signing up to give even more than you started with. Um, I feel incredibly, incredibly blessed. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, actually, I'm about a quarter of the way to my long-term goal of 800 per month. And if you'd like to jump on that support train, just hit the link to my Patreon page in the description. As little as $1 per month will unlock a vast trove of unspeakable treasures. Things like secret episodes, live sermons, even original music that the world has never heard before. Uh, if you can, imagine it like a speakeasy that's so exclusive. Not even Frank Sinatra is allowed in, and then you're getting the picture. Uh, business item number two. Uh, if you've been benefited by this show at all, please do me a favor and leave a nice five-star review on your chosen platform. The more quality reviews I have, the more people can find this show. It's very simple, but it helps a ton. Uh, and now, on to the featured subject of today's program. I don't know why I said that like a grandpa, but it did. Sodom and Gomorrah. Um... I want to give a warning really quick, though, that what we're going to be talking about contains some stuff that would make Quentin Tarantino wince. The Bible has no shortage of X-rated tales, and this is definitely one of them. Um, and I also want to throw out a trigger warning to those who have experienced sexual assault. This story does speak to those themes, so please just be aware as you listen. Now, if you didn't listen to part one of this series, you might be wondering... What on earth the wrath of God has to do with a show like House of Bliss? But I would say this, if you want to live a life of bliss, 
it's really impossible not to talk about the wrath of God. I mean, I think about it like Mount Sinai. Uh, in that story, the people of Israel, they saw God as this blazing fire and smoke on the mountain. And they were so terrified to go near that they sent Moses to do it. But when Moses stepped into that same scary fire, he actually encountered something breathtakingly beautiful instead. God said that he would show his glory to Moses, and he made his goodness pass by before him. And his goodness was so intense that God said he would hide him in the cleft of the rock uh, so that he wouldn't be destroyed by the, good, by the sheer brilliance of God's goodness. So what does this story say to me? That the glory of God is his goodness. Or you could say it this way, God's goodness is his glory. So when you see a scary story like Sodom and Gomorrah, um, it will inevitably cause questions to arise in our hearts. And if we don't deal with these questions and doubts, they will silently undermine even our sweetest encounters with the Lord. If not now, then eventually. Like right now, you'll probably hear lots of talk about folks having these crises lately of faith. And I believe it's because evangelicalism just hasn't given people the freedom or the tools to deal with these questions. And so these doubts, they become like skeletons in our closet, gnawing at us just uh, beneath the surface, just waiting to strike. But if we courageously dive into even the hardest parts of the Bible with Jesus as our guide, we will indeed come out the other side, faces shining, more convinced of his goodness than ever. So I've noticed that one of the stumbling blocks people have towards freedom is that they've been taught that they have to live with an alarming amount of cognitive dissonance. For example, I want you to listen to this quote from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Not only is he one of the most celebrated preachers in history, but this comes from one of the most if not the most famous sermon in all of American history. And this is what he says. He says, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear, oh, sorry, than to have to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. And then later he continues, It is everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment but you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you will see nothing but a long forever, uh, forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your souls. You will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages, in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty merciless vengeance. And then, 
when you have so done, when many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. <laughs> there are people who will say that this is an accurate picture of God. But then they'll also say things like, well, God is a God of unconditional love, or God is good all the time. But the Bible defines, listen, not me, the Bible defines love as patient, kind, keeping no record of wrongs, always hoping, always believing. So this monster has nothing to do with love. And some people will try to hide their cognitive dissonance under phrases like, well, his ways are always higher than our ways. But as David Bentley Hart says, if humans are so woefully stupid that we can't discern the difference between love and cruelty, then words cease to have any meaning at all. Like, sure, words are limited. God will always be bigger and better than I can possibly describe. But if love and hatred are the same thing, then it's literally impossible to say or understand anything about God. Words become utterly useless. So my problem is not that I don't believe in the wrath of God. I do, and I believe it's a terrible thing. But my problem is people will use stories like Sodom and Gomorrah to defend their vile monster gods, when in reality, the Bible, when taken as a whole, actually reveals the exact polar opposite about God. So in this episode, we're going to take a journey together. We are actually going to read the entire story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to talk about how it's a stepping stone on the way to Jesus Christ, and then we're going to see what Jesus reveals about God's wrath. So please, buckle up, keep an open mind, and stay with me for the long haul. Out of all the episodes that I've done, uh, I understand that this has some really heavy emotional weight to it on the front end, but I promise you the goodies on the other side are worth it. So stick with me. And lastly, before we dive into the story, I just want to say another quick little thing about the Old Testament. What you've got to realize is that the Old Testament is a journey. It has movement to it. It's the story of God slowly moving humanity away from primitive pagan idol worship and prepping them to receive his ultimate self-revelation, which is Jesus Christ. So everything before Jesus should be considered a foggy and incomplete idea of God, a fragment or a glimpse, as Hebrews puts it. But we cannot park on a snapshot of this journey and think, ah, this is what God's like, and this is how God operates. No, we have to resist that until we get to Jesus. But once we get to Jesus, we're able to go back through the story with him as our guide, and then from there, we can begin to discern the true nature and intention of Yahweh. So when hearing a theological idea about God, we can no longer ask, can I find that in the Bible? But instead, we need to ask, can I find that in Jesus Christ? Now, who's ready to read Sodom and Gomorrah? I have an actual paper Bible here with me, and I'm going to open it, and I would encourage you to do the same. It might help you follow along. 
So I'm just going to read, uh, and then I might stop at certain sections and just give a few little uh, insights, okay? It says, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself low to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried to the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took the curds and the milk and the calf which he prepared, and he placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Now, one thing about this that hits me immediately is that God visits Abraham in person. So remember, if part of God's goal in the Old Testament is to show that he's unlike these evil pagan gods of Abraham's past, well, those gods typically lived far away, somewhere else, and the last thing they want to do is hang out with dirty humans. In fact, actually, they were cruel and antagonistic towards humans, and they needed lots of appeasing. But Yahweh here actually eats a meal with Abraham. Um, there's an old belief that the gods were actually hungry and needed to eat humans to be appeased. But Yahweh here is actually just sitting here eating to enjoy fellowship with Abraham. It's mind-blowing. It's revolutionary. Uh, moving on here. And you know what? I'm going to skip this little bit about um, Sarah and the promise of Isaac and all that stuff. We're just going to move on because that doesn't really have to do with Sodom and Gomorrah at the moment. Um, it says, Then the men rose up from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. Abraham was walking with them to send them off, and the Lord said, uh, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So I love how God treats Abraham as a friend. It's cool how he has this conversation with himself and he invites Abraham into his thought process. Um, this invitation is actually echoed later when Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends, because servants don't know what their master is doing. Moving on. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to the outcry which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So in this story, God cares deeply about justice. He's there because he heard the cry of the afflicted. So the wrath of God is never about fuming, vengeful anger. What it's really about is his heart for the oppressed. Uh, but even then, 
Even then, he gives the oppressed the benefit of the doubt, and he goes and investigates in person. So the wrath of God is never about fuming, vengeful anger. So think about this. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And what was his attitude towards Jerusalem's rejection? Was it indignation? Was it fury? No, he wept because the last thing he wanted to do was allow harm to come to them. But as we know, they stubbornly and hard-heartedly refused mercy and forgiveness. But we'll talk about that later, so keep that in your mind, and let's keep reading. So, uh, the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. When Abraham was still standing before the Lord, Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? I mean, suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty are, uh, fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And on and on they go until he gets down to ten. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it on account of ten. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Once again, think about what this story might mean to its original audience. The fact that Abraham, it says Abraham drew near to him and he stops God in his path. This tells you something about the character of the one Abraham was with. Not only did he feel comfortable disagreeing with God, but he felt comfortable getting in his face. So this suggests a true um, intimacy that's honestly completely unheard of in any other relationship between a God and man, in any other culture that I know of. Actually, perhaps even today, that's revolutionary. Like, it's easy to look at this story and go, wow, you know, look how much more merciful Abraham is than God. Uh, But that's not really the point at all. The point is that this God purposely wants to include Abraham in his decision making. So God's will isn't this fixed, rigid thing, but it's actually inextricably linked with our humanity and our free will. And now we're going to get into the really crazy part. It says, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, uh, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night. And wash your feet that you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, uh, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them uh, strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he prepared a feast for them. He baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, and all people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came with you tonight? 
bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. If you're a little bit dense, uh, relations is uh, American translation, Bible speak for, they wanted to rape them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do whatever you like to them. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. Okay, <laughs> let's park here for a minute. Now, obviously, Sodom was a really messed up place. It says every man, young and old, showed up and demanded to rape God's angels. Yikes. Also, Lot, who we eventually find out is the most righteous person in the entire city, he offers up, like that guy offers up his daughters to be sexually assaulted by an angry mob. Like, that guy is the model citizen here. Um, you know, we actually get some extra info in the Talmud and other Jewish commentaries. These sources say that the Sodomites were especially cruel to outsiders. Um, there's stories about how they would often lure guests into their homes, and if the bed wasn't the right size, they would chop the legs off the person or stretch them out to fit the bed. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were deeply antagonistic to the poor and to the foreigner, which, as you probably know, is a huge theme throughout the Bible. There's actually even a story um, about one of the daughters of Lot who was murdered uh, simply because she chose to feed a starving poor person. So the rabbis actually say that it was her cry to Yahweh that pierced the heavens and stirred him to action. So Sodom and Gomorrah were evil cities, and not just not just corrupt cities like 1920s Chicago in bed with Al Capone, no, but these cities were deeply, horrifyingly twisted. Uh, the rabbis actually say that the true sin of Sodom was not their sexual violence, but actually their hard-hearted us-versus-them mentality. In fact, Ezekiel confirms this when he says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom, that she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Now the reason I'm highlighting all this to you is to say that this narrative is way, way more complex than God was with homosexuals and decided to roast them and San Francisco is next. Uh... Like, if you want to read it with 21st century eyes and think, wow, that sounds really harsh, God, you can. But what we don't realize is the kind of vile stuff they were into. So let's finish the story here. They said, this one, ca this one came in as a foreigner and an alien, and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men, the angels reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they were wearying themselves trying to find the doorway. Uh, then the two men said to Lot, Who else do you have here? A son-in-law and your daughter. Um, he says, A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city. Bring them out of the place. 
for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry has become so great before the Lord uh, that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke uh, to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Okay, so basically I'm going to skip some of the stuff here. Uh, basically the angels say, get out of here and don't look back. And Lot, <laughs> he's still complaining and hesitating. He says, I can't make it all the way up to the mountain. Let me stop at the little village on the way. And they're like, okay, fine. So they send them out of the city, and as soon as they leave the city grounds, that's when all hell breaks loose, literally. So here's here's kind of where we're wrapping up here. It says, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Whew. Interestingly, I was reading in Forbes uh, about how scientists indeed agree that the story is rooted in some sort of historic event. If you go to this area where the city of Sodom and Gomorrah were, the ground actually contains evidence of some sort of extreme explosive heat um they obviously don't believe the bible's account but they do think that some kind of meteor must have exploded over the region and caused the entire area of 200 square miles to be burnt to a crisp and covered with superheated salt so this could potentially explain the bit about lot's wife turning into salt um but now we're going to get into a particularly sad verse uh, it says, Now Abraham, who arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Wow. Whew. I wanted to sit in that for just a minute. Like, think about how sad that must have been for Abraham. Gut-wrenching. The place where he argued with God, and now he's looking down and horrifying sight of smoke rising in the distance. Man, the feelings after he felt, after all that agonizing and wrestling, I think right there is the picture of how God feels about sin. Uh, not that he's angry with people. Not that his wrath is about anger towards people. But he actually cares so deeply about how sin hurts us. So thankfully, this is a show about good news. And indeed, I do have some amazing happy news for you. Um, but before we get into all that, let's just take a quick breather. And then when we come back, we'll talk about what Jesus shows us about this story. Welcome back. 
now we're going to start to dive into some of the fun stuff. But don't take off your thinking cap. We've still got a bit of a ways to go. But I'm going to try to get through this as clearly and succinctly and as drunkenly as I possibly can. So here's my take. I'm going to give you three concepts about the wrath of God. I need you to keep an open mind and hear me out. So number one, the wrath of God, no matter how it's portrayed in the Old Testament, is not something that God actively does. No, divine judgment is when God reluctantly hands people over and lets evil take its course. It is the inevitable consequence that is built into sin itself. For example, if somebody drank poison... Nobody would say that God killed that person, right? But God's wrath actually exists to stop people from drinking the poison of sin. When the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, it doesn't mean that God is going to kill you. Like God didn't say to Adam, I will kill you. He said, no, no, no. He said, you will surely die. So James talks about how when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. So Athanasius, the church father, talks about how death and corruption are the result of people losing their knowledge and fellowship with the God who is life. Jesus is the word of life. God is not the giver of death. He's the giver of life. But if you demand to walk away from him, there's only one possible outcome. And if we think about how the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and all of the forces of evil that lie in wait, well, if someone stubbornly refuses mercy, where else is there to go? What else do you expect to happen? If someone won't respond to mercy, God will hand them over to what they demand, and they will experience the full weight of their actions. Here's some examples of this in Scripture. Okay, here's one from the Psalms. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared him for deadly wep- uh, He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives of evil, is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, and digging it out, falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, on his own skull. His violence descends. Wrath is the result of sowing and reaping. Okay, so the psalmist is saying initially God is personally angry, but it's laced with metaphor. I mean, does God use an actual bow and arrow to shoot people down? No. So he says he's personally angry, but then the way it actually plays out, this person falls into their own pit. Hosea 8 talks about how they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The New Testament also has some key passages about this. For example, Romans 1 talks about how God gave them over to depraved minds and they received in themselves, key word, in themselves, the due penalty. It also talks about the wrath of God, if you've ever noticed this, like it's kind of an impersonal thing, like it's something that's coming from God, but it's not part of God. Because wrath is not an emotion. It is simply the result of sowing and reaping. And this is especially, okay, this is especially important and clear on the cross because Jesus absorbing wrath 
has nothing to do with an angry father, but rather Jesus absorbing the curse of sin and its effects on behalf of all humanity. So if Jesus is the clearest picture of God, and we're dealing with wrath here, uh, did God ever lay a finger on Jesus? No. But what does it say? It says over and over that he delivered him over to men. Principle number two, wrath is the extension of God's love. And the goal of wrath is always restoration, never destruction in and of itself. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he wept. God himself. He's not sitting there raging. He's pleading. When the judgment does come, it comes at the hands of the Romans. And all throughout scripture, you get these glimpses of God's heart pleading with Israel. He never, ever, ever wants or takes satisfaction in destruction. And to me, this is why the doctrine of penal substitution is such a backwards distortion. For example, even in the Old Testament, here's a tender passage from Hosea that shows us when you peel back the Old Testament layers, you can actually still see the heart of Abba, Father, shining through. It says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they ran away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. And it was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms. They didn't realize that it was I who healed them. I led them out with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God Most High. I will by no means exalt them. But here's the, you can hear the longing here. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma or make you like Zeboyim? My heart is changed within me. All of my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man. I am the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from the Egypt, uh, from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Wow. Now, in hearing that, you might think, okay, well, if wrath is really about restoration, it sure doesn't sound like Sodom and Gomorrah got much of a chance. So that brings me to principle number three. Death is never the last word. I believe it's unscriptural to think that people who died in the Old Testament were automatically just sent to hell for all eternity. For example... Jesus said that judgment will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Tyre and Sidon. Think about that. If the end of the story is just eternal conscious torment a la Jonathan Edwards, then there's no contrast to be made here. And furthermore, Peter mentions how Jesus descended in the hell 
and preach to the spirits locked in prison since the days of Noah. Now, I don't pretend to have a clear understanding of what that exactly means or how it plays out, but I think it's safe to say that Sodom wasn't just torched and that's it, as if God's unending mercy was just suddenly ended. That's that. Bye-bye. Peace out. And so, my brethren and sistren, I want to wrap up with this. My grand conclusion. Whatever conclusion you have about God based on Sodom and Gomorrah, an angry God who sends natural disasters to level cities is not a valid one. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that demonic powers actually have something to do with what we would just call natural disasters. For example, when Jesus calmed the storm, the Greek is the same as when he cast demons out of people. When Jesus' disciples wanted to call down fire on a city for rejecting him, he rebuked them. But where did they get that idea? <laughs> no, but Jesus goes on to say they don't know what spirit they were of. In the book of Numbers, the sons of Korah rebel against God, and it says the flames of the Lord broke out against the people. In the New Testament, however, Paul adds in 1 Corinthians in his version that the people were destroyed by a destroying angel. Well, there's nothing in the original text that hints at that, but Paul is reading between the lines that these people open the door to the destroyer to wreak havoc on them. So, Sodom and Gomorrah is the story of what happens when we refuse mercy and demand to be handed over to the destroyer. But, but, if you listen to my series, The Glories of the Cross, you know that this is exactly what Jesus came to liberate us from. Jesus came to deliver the entire earth from its great spiritual oppressors. Uh, Jesus, think about this, Jesus led the new exodus, leading humanity out of its slavery to death. The same God that heard the cry of injustice in Sodom came to liberate the human race from its captors. Jesus took what humanity deserves, not in the sense of an easily offended God whose honor was violated, no, but he became sin and took all the effects of and consequences of millennia after millennia of human rebellion. He destroyed it in his own body. Now, if you want to continue to identify with your already defeated sin, you may. Or you can identify with the finished work of Jesus Christ and live 100% curse-free. No more karma. In fact, instead of reaping the fruits of what humanity deserves, you begin to live from what Jesus Christ himself deserves. Death no longer has claim over you because he descended into hell and died your death. Yes, the cage doors are open. There's not a shred of fear left. Not fear of an angry God, not fear of a destroyer, but you right now are safe and secure in his loving, tender arms forevermore. Just like the prodigal son who got himself into the pig pen, God openly welcomes you back as his beloved child with not a hint of punishment involved. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel that you have liberated us. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Woo! Thank you, Lord. <laughs> oh, you guys can tell this is actually working on me right now. No more fear. I want to read you one more scripture, and then I'm going to pray for you guys. John says uh, that God is love. And this is how John unpacks it. He says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But we love because he first loves us. So what I want you to do is I want you to um, just put your hands on your heart right now. Actually put one hand on your head and one hand on your heart. If you have been afflicted by this angry um, Jonathan Edwards monster God myth, I just want to declare freedom to you today, freedom to your mind, freedom for you to forget and unravel all of the bad theology and teachings that undermines what you're feeling right now. I know you can feel it in my words, the the fire of the Holy Ghost, the bliss of love. You, you can feel uh, just the Holy Spirit moving over you, causing you to feel like you're home. That is the God of Jesus Christ. That is the Abba Father of Jesus Christ, that you are saved and secure in his arms you know what's interesting <clears throat> sorry i'm preaching in my prayer that in the story of sodom and gomorrah abraham had to fight uh for mercy for even 10 people but jesus says he tells the stories about his abba who if he if he was a shepherd with a hundred sheep he would do it all for even one lost sheep. If he had 10 coins, he would do it all just to find that one lost coin. And if he had two sons, he would abandon everything for that one son, no matter what it cost him. You are God's treasure. You are his pearl. He is not angry with you. He is not mad at you. No, in fact, everything that you could possibly do to alienate yourself to, from God, to throw yourself into hell, he has redeemed in his own body he became your sin and he destroyed it once and for all there is no shadow of turning in him there is nothing to fear there's no hammer that's going to fall there's no punishment that's going to come your way sure he might help you he might discipline if uh you find yourself acting stupid but it's only and ever and always for the purpose of helping you avoid death and pain and destruction so right now, thank you, Lord, that by your spirit, your arms are wide open, wide open. And I just pray right now for everyone listening that they would feel your arms of embrace around them. Holy Spirit, just go off like a bomb in their spirit right now. Yes, yes, yes. Liberation, liberation, liberation. I speak liberation in the name of Jesus. Yeah, any spirit of a religion that's threatened to uh, choke out your your genuine childlike love of the Lord, I just cast that away from you in the name of Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. Look, just look into the eyes of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.
Thank you, Abba Father. You are good. You are thoroughly good. You are fully good. You are completely good through and through. You are the word of life. You are light and you are love. In Jesus' name, I bless you guys. Thank you for listening.